KCSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molyneux. This is the Henry George Program. We are back here in 2020 talking about what happened last year with statewide renter issues here in California. We're talking about AB 1482, the statewide rent cap, just cause protections for renters, and how implementation went, including emergency ordinances. We have on tenant advocate and activist Stasha Powell of One Redwood City and back on the show Jordan Grimes of Peninsula for Everyone so we'll talk about all about what happened with the history of uh, of this bill and kind of the ugly details of how uh, cities had to uh, implement it locally as well well let's get into things so welcome Sasha hello thank you for having us yeah and welcome Jordan again hey Mark good to be back we're talking uh, AB 1482 and much more about, you know, uh, what <laughs> what little prog- uh, progressive uh, changes are being made to help renters and how difficult it can still be to get uh, any advantage out of them. Uh, so, okay, so let's start off. AB 1482, what is it? So rent can't go above 5% plus CPI. It also adds a just cause eviction portion to it. There are some buildings that won't qualify for it. I know duplexes, if the owner lives on one side, anything uh, under 15 years old. Um, the other? Yeah, there's also an exemption for single-family homes that are not owned by a corporate entity. So, for example, if your landlord is a, what is colloquially known as mom-and-pop Love them. Love the mom and pop. Gotta, gotta love those mom and pops. Uh, if your landlord is a mom and pop landlord. Aren't they all? They claim to be. Right. And yet, and yet. But yeah, if your landlord is a mom and pop landlord, they are exempt. Uh, is there also, is there, if there's, is there minimum requirements, like as far as units go on top of that too? If, if your landlord has only like one unit. I think if you sublet a room in your house, you're not covered, Right. Yeah, I think I believe that's correct. But if you own a property that's not a single family home, I, it's like I, I feel like it's, it's it's not like a five unit carve out. It's no, no, it's not. And it's um, that's, that's the the carve out specifically um, is for is for corporately owned is for corporately owned uh, you know single family homes. Yeah, a lot of people say it's like oh uh, state right. I guess carve in. <laughs> Yeah, in that in that case, statewide rent control comes to California. I mean, this is it's five percent per year. It's it's not you know it's a rent cap, not rent control. Exactly, and and on top of that, people say like the real thing is just it. This is it takes a rent cap to make just cause possible because if your landlord is just cause, they can't evict you. If they can still jack up your rent arbitrarily, they can still evict you. They can economically evict you. Yeah, and right. that's so. Let, let's talk about too. Uh, what what got you kind of first involved with uh, rent renter issues? You're, you're you've been renting for a while in Redwood City until uh, something that was right. a pretty good situation changed. I lived at my building for almost twenty years, and we had an owner changeover, and then we had construction for a whole year, no hot water, no heat, and then because Redwood City has two ordinances, one is was supposed to be to help the tenants, but it didn't because the relocation, you could get relocation for three months if you lived there long enough and you qualified financially. But you could have a landlord like mine who decided to do economic eviction so they don't have to pay relocation. So they just make the rent so 
insanely high. In my case, I went from 1,040 a month to 2,700 a month. So the reload, they'd owe you like three months rent or something. Right, it would have been less than three thousand dollars. But they still said this is not worth it to do the right thing. Right. Let's let's really squeeze them. Right. And this is someone to be clear, like you, like they bought out longtime family landlords. I mean, I'm, I'm, they bought out three properties on my street, all historic buildings, all Prop 13 that used to be Prop 13 owned by elderly people who had passed away. I mean, it's still Prop 13, but the longer you have it, the sweeter the Prop 13 gets. Right. Yeah. So they, they, I mean, so they got you and they realized it's like, boy, you know, great property, but the, these darn people are here. If we can get rid of it, <laughs> right, right. then we can make some real money. Uh, so it's not surprising that they started like, yeah, the, the renoviction process, as they say it. Uh, Demoviction. <laughs> yeah. and I mean, we lived in a construction zone. Let's just be clear. I came out and they took the stairs off with no warning and I got really, I dislocated my hip and I'm still suffering from that injury. So it wasn't like this was a nicely done uh, project. You were constantly in a construction zone. So as it stands now, if your landlord starts turning your place in a construction zone, what real protections do tenants have? I, I don't even know, you know, to be honest, offhand. Other than health and safety code violations and making sure they have the proper permits, we don't have a lot in Redwood that's, City. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's pretty much true in San Mateo County. Yeah, um, right. San Mateo County has historically been incredibly unfriendly to to renters um, and to to advocates for renters, which you've seen over a number of rent control and tenant protection campaigns over the last few years. And there's really not a lot out there. Frankly, 1482 is the biggest protection that renters have ever seen in San Mateo County. And I I think we'll see for some time. Yeah. I mean, as as I, I think it's been clear to a lot, a lot of people for a long time, it's, it's a wild west for landlords. Landlords... First of all, they have the property, so they always have the stronger hand as opposed to renters who need a roof over their head. Uh, and then on top of it, like yeah, different municipalities, uh, you know, people have passed protections in SF, they pass protections in San Jose, but you know, most of the peninsula cities, you know, have had very little to protect their tenants. It's a free for all, and it's really difficult to get any protections at all when there's no baseline. I think one of the best parts about 1482 is that while it's not it's not rent control. It doesn't, you know, I don't think there, there are very few of us who I think would, would argue that 1482 goes far enough, but it sets up a series of baseline protections that I think are really important in so many cities across the state that have had historically just literally no protection at all from, from anything. And hopefully um, what I think many of us are really looking forward to over the coming years is seeing renters being able to start to correct that power imbalance to to a small extent and and be able to fight back. Yeah, I think it also shows it shows the politicians that the renters have a voice and we're starting to mobilize and we're going to get out and vote and that they're going to have to start seeing things from both sides instead of just from the developers or the landlords. Yeah, and I think I think this is I am skeptical a lot of really great things are going to come out of Sacramento. It's uh, Sacramento. Uh, it has, it is very, it listens heavily to realtors, listens heavily to landlords. Renters don't really have a voice here. And historically, they have tended to uh, get their actions being done at a very local level. But for the first time, I think that, you know, renters are really starting to get, 
the groundwork and framework to really pass things at the state level. So 1482 was passed last year, and you were, in fact, in Sacramento several times. What was it, what was it like, and what was, what was your process to push for this bill as it was going well, through? I like radio because I'm horrible with social anxiety at public speaking, so the first time was mortifying. Um, they saw me... I had started a tenants unit at my building and we had a rent rally, so I'd been on the media a bit. And I had been like, I'd say I was a tenant advocate light before the incident at my building. Um, but then, because I have a real estate background in my career, I I started seeing that I could maybe be helpful in other places. So when they called and asked if I'd tell my story, they told me it was going to be a conference room with a few people. And it ended up being a press junket with like 80 cameras. Um, so uh, it was, I don't remember most of it. I've watched it back. It was nerve wracking, but it was exciting to see. Also, I wanted to show, we have a really big discrepancy in on the peninsula. There were a ton of people there testifying about their rent increases of 10 to 15%. But in Redwood City, we were seeing rent increases of over 150% on a regular basis. So after the first time, I ended up going to Sacramento nine times for 1482. I testified at, I think, every one of the uh, the things that go on with it. You go into different rooms with assembly members and senators. Um, and I did my first lobbying because uh, I really believed. I was really behind and I still, it doesn't go far enough, yeah. but it's a really good start. And I mean, and it's a lot of things are alarming. It sunsets in a few years. And a lot of people are saying it's like, well. Not a few, 10. Ten, well, okay. Ten, well, ten's still a few years, and in, in, it could, uh, but yeah, it's like I mean, but it's it's a foot in the door, and I think it's once you get something, I th- hopefully it's hard to take it away. And it's a it's a foot in the it's a foot in the door for it's statewide. I think is the most important thing to remember. There are very limited there are a very limited number of municipalities that have any sort of well, prior to this, that had any sort of tenant protection. And now you've literally blanketed the entire state. Every municipality has to comply with this. Yeah. And hopefully, I think I said this earlier, but hopefully what we're going to see is renters starting to realize that they don't have to just take what they, you know, have been dealing with for basically the entire history of basically all of Californian history. And uh, you keep on before and talked about it, but a few years ago, San, San Mateo went down in flames of trying to pass rent control we in did. 2016. And like you walked away with, with no protections, as it were. Exactly. And, yeah. um, and I, I do think that's another one of the benefits of 1482 is that, yeah, 2016 was a really rough year for, uh, for San Mateo, for Pacifica, for Burlingame. All three rent control, uh, all three cities had rent control ordinances on the ballot. All three lost by, you know, double digits despite very vigorous campaigns. San Mateo's, um, we talk a lot about, you know, money in politics, especially um, when it comes to when it comes to real estate. And San Mateo's campaign, the Yes on Measure Q, which was the rent control side, the Yes on Q campaign spent around $80,000. And the No on Q side, uh, which saw money from realtors, from the National Association of Realtors, from the state level realtors, um, the No on Q side spent, I think it, the total was around $1.2 million. And so 2016, the one positive note in the peninsula was Mountain View. Mountain View passed uh, their uh, rent control measure in 2016. 
Uh, but I have a friend who was you know, renting a Mountain View at that point, and his landlord still was just violating it openly. And so he like sent emails. And he was like, oh, you know what? You know, uh, I think there was a measure. You can't do this. And I mean, that's the thing. What like what are the enforcement mechanisms for these things? Because usually there isn't. And instead, that became kind of like, well, I could start a legal proceedings, but stuff like that can be pretty pretty difficult, as you can kind of explain yourself. Right. The enforcement enforcement mechanism is um, apparently the tenant advocates, the tenant advocate lawyers, because. 1482 says it is up to the landlord to notify the tenant. I don't know many landlords who will notify their tenants of a potential rent decrease. Yeah. And so really, I mean, the reality is there there really isn't a practical enforcement mechanism in 1482. Renters are very much in the position that you you take what you can get. And <laughs> Like I've said, you know, like Stasha said, this is a big step forward. But enforcement is absolutely going to be a problem. Um, I'm very grateful, and we all are very grateful that there are many fantastic local organizations, CLESPA, um, Community Legal Services in East Palo Alto, San Mateo County Legal Aid, organizations that um, are able to are able to handle, and field calls and emails when local tenant groups direct direct them to them. But enforcement is is undoubtedly one of the biggest challenges to come out of the bill. And hopefully that will be that will be addressed in potentially some cleanup, you know, in a cleanup bill. Um, but but by far the work definitely isn't over on that front either. And there's still legal questions, right? So my organization, One Redwood City, hosted a legal clinic last Wednesday with lawyers from CLESPA and Legal Aid Society of San Mateo to help us with best practices on, you know, what can we how can we tell the tenants? How should we advise them? When is it appropriate for us to send a letter on their behalf? Or when do they immediately need legal help? And even among the three lawyers that were there, there's still some parts of the bill that they, you know, lawyers, they could fight either side. And some of the meetings I've went to where landlords were present, what I heard them saying was they were not going to do anything until it went through the courts. So I think we're also going to have to look for some cases to make it through to set a precedence that the court will rule that this is lawful and then force them to comply. Like they're not going to post the things they're supposed to post. They're just going to say, I'm not doing anything until like until the courts are done. That's about it. Wow. I mean, so another thing that failed, I, like I forget the exact uh, story of how it was. It was a rental registry last year at the state level. Yeah, and, that was AB uh, 724 by Buffy Wicks in the East Bay. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like of all things, like, okay, you need to actually track enforcement. Wouldn't having a list of, you know, of, of who has what. It's funny, like, this this stuff isn't tracked for the most part. It's, it's, it's nutty. And even places that have, like San Jose has a partial rental registry only for units over 40 years old that are covered by their local rent control. It's it's kind of weird that this is there's so much pushback to even create this in the first place. There's like some privacy concerns, but actually they would have enforced in a way that would have I forget the details and how you protect privacy with a rental registry, but it's just kind of it's one more thing. Landlords, what did they get to do? They kind of get away with what they can, what they want. Yeah, they they pretty much control a lot of our electeds. It seems, unfortunately, um, the tenant advocate. We're just going to have to do as much as we can to enforce it. Like I said, I think as soon as we get some precedent, some of them will probably back down. 
Yeah. They just want to see that a judge said, yes, you have to absolutely do this. Yeah. I've only seen one letter sent out from a landlord. Another tenant advocate sent it to me and it said, since I have to send you this letter, I wasn't going to raise your rent, but since I had to send you this letter, here's your legal 9% rent increase. Yeah. Um, it was a... I had mixed feelings about it. Not great. <laughs> I, I Not saw, great. I saw some people who were just like anti-rent control people. So they're like, oh, look, you kind of, this shows why you're wrong. Because when you create this this uh, this cap, people are going to comply with the cap. You kind of you kind of owned yourself. I mean, I think the thing is, I think keeping stuff affordable, uh, you know, uh, security through obscurity, has n- was never really a good plan. You... Uh, essentially lucked out and had low rent for a while until you didn't luck out. And uh, Well, land- people said I lucked out, but let's be clear. I had a 400-square-foot apartment that rarely had a working toilet with no <laughs> heat and no hot water. Yeah, to find luck. And, and so there was a reason my rent was so low at no amenities, zero. Yeah. Um, so I did get a lot of that from the media. Well, you're lucky your rent was so low. Well, no. I mean, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs that just having a roof of your head, even if it's decrepit, is a good deal in this in this area, you know. Well, and one thing I want to put forward um, to the comment about that something you're you're absolutely right in that something that we heard often from from various sources, from the media, from landlords was this concern that people, if you if you institute this cap, that uh, you're just going to wind up with landlords raising, you know, arbitrarily raising the rent even more even more so than they already do, and Really, really, the answer that I that I like to that I can't remember if it's from tenants together or where it's from, but uh, the the answer to problems with rent control is more rent control, mm. um, and and I mean that's that's like truly that that is the solution here, right? Yeah. If if they're just going if they're going to arbitrarily raise the rent nine percent, then it should be lower than that. Then the cap should be lower than that. Well, and I mean, I think what. You know, I I think and I and I hope that that is going to be something that the legislature you know continues to work on, um, but that's that's really the answer there. I got accosted at Sky Kitchen. I was with a friend, and we got accosted by a landlord um, at the communal table because there was no booths left. He was like, "Aren't you the rent control girl?" He just started screaming at me, and then he said something very telling he said i don't raise rents and now i'm going to raise it the max every time because he was such a nice guy yeah, he said because if something goes wrong i need to be able to pay for it well 23 years in high finance real estate i'm aware that you have a budget for repairs if you're a decent landlord yeah. so when i said don't you have a budget for repairs for your properties and then he got like so off the handle that my friend was uncomfortable and we had to leave well, and there's what's colloquially known as telling on yourself, and that's right. that's essentially what a, a lot of landlords have done with this. I didn't is, properly manage my property, so now you're going to pay me a lot every year. Correct. Like, I'm unable to formulate and stick to a budget, and therefore I'm going to jack up the rates on my tenants because I'm a spiteful troll. Right. Now, look, I am very understanding. If it is a real mom and pop, like I have friends who own one property. I have a landlady in Redwood City who owns two, where if they said, I can't afford this repair, let's work something out. That's probably true. But most of the bad actors aren't poor landlords. They're multimillionaires. Yeah. And I mean, I think that goes back to there, there are mom and pops who absolutely one of one of the things I learned, and I really first learned this when I was working in employment law, um, 
one of the things that you learn about landlords too is that there are there are many small landlords who frankly get their jollies off messing with their tenants. Um, their properties are their own little fiefdoms and they they view it as this is just an investment for me. I can do whatever I want with it and I'm going to raise the rent however much I want. There, there are other small landlords who truly are mom and pops who basically say this isn't just an investment property to me. This is I care about these people and they have tenants who have lived there for years and years and treat them very well. But one of the things I think we've largely found is that many of the people fall into – many of the smaller landlords fall into the former camp rather than the latter. And size, at least to me and in, in my experience, has – size of landlord has – or number of properties owned has rarely been a good indicator um, of whether or not the landlord is going to be scummy. I mean I think a big question, just any scale – is landlording a business or is it like a subsistence hobby? I would say it clearly <laughs> is a business to me. And I mean, if you really want to, out of charity, have properties and like start like running a co-op or something, you know, it's like, it's very weird to say like, oh, you know, this is just something that is, it's, it's not business to me. Right. Who- I find it odd that there's no so in my work, a lot of my clients own assisted living facilities and there's all these rules and regulations they have to comply with or they own grocery stores and there's all these rules and regulations they have to comply with. But when you own housing, people have to live in yeah. all of a sudden. Well, nothing. I just don't understand that part. And every time we try to do anything to protect ourselves, they spend millions of dollars to fight it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, the sky is going to fall. So what I hope what 1482 will do is prove that false narrative yeah. is, is wrong. Like the sky isn't going to fall. We'll see in a year. They're still millionaires. They're still going to own a lot of properties. It's going to be okay. I mean, I think there's a, there's a trade-off too, I think, with big and small landlords. Big landlords, they're very corporate. They're very efficient. They're going to kind of... They're going to squeeze you as much as they can because they're optimizers, but they will also comply with regulations for the most part because they have a legal department. You have a small landlord, they might not actually find every loophole to squeeze you, but they might just be psychos. Uh, my like Redwood City landlord, before I got evicted there, like just one point, uh, like just came into our unit without without any notice, went to the shower and started taking a shower. Which is like breaking all sorts of laws. <laughs> I wonder if they were related. The previous landlords at my building. Yeah. See, we had cheap rent, but we also had an owner who came by the property 15 times a day to like direct his own little soap opera and start drama among tenants. He went into our apartments illegally. All the women and stole our panties. That's great. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing too. It's like I. You can say like on the what is what are you trying to accomplish here? If the if you're trying to accomplish that. A bunch of homeowners should lent out rooms, and you want to make sure they don't have to fill out a mile of paperwork. I can see that argument, but like these are people actually owning buildings. It's like a, a fair amount of regulation is, I think, reasonable to me. Ab- not- absolutely, and I mean, I think that's one of that was that was really one of the funnier things that I observed while watching, and I think a lot of us observed while we were watching the whole 14A2 debate play out was you had and and you know just rent control debates play out in general you have all these property owners who are just aghast and horrified that you know how 
how dare you do this audacious, you know, you consider this audacious thing of of regulating my property. Yeah. When in reality, your property is a business like this is this is a business. This is an industry that you have that you have gotten into. And like, I mean, exactly what Stasha was saying. Every other industry is regulated. Like we regulate pollution. We regulate uh, you know, who can we regulate the auto industry? Like cars have to have seatbelts. There have to be um I think it's I'm not sure if it's it's David Chu that talked about this or the Housing Leadership Council or whom, but uh no, I think it's the Housing Leadership Council that that uh talks about this, that this is this is really a consumer rights issue, that it's an issue of health and that it's a health and safety issue and Renters are consuming a product and landlords are furnishing that product and there needs to be reasonable regulations to protect the consumer from overzealous or unscrupulous uh, profiteers. You talk about the, I guess, where does the burden of work kind of fall with any kind of program? And I think normally... There's regressive impacts on the people who politicians don't really have to care about because they're poor. They're not the normal people. It's like you talk about like food stamps or something. It's like, oh, let's start doing drug testing for food stamps. Let's start. But like you talk about, for example, something that benefits a lot of people. Let's talk about the property owners, the landowners. They have Prop 13 benefits. Off mic, the funny suggestion was brought up. If you want to keep your Prop 13 benefit, the you, the fact that you complied regulations should be a necessary feature of complying with it. That's, Absolutely, that's a great idea. My previous owner paid four thousand some dollars a year to Redwood City property tax for a Prop 13 building with 26 units. Then didn't maintain the property, so we're calling code enforcement, city manager, yeah, planning, the permit people, uh, health and safety people. All these staff hours are spent at the building because the landlord doesn't have an on-site manager, which is the law for anything over that amount of units. And then they're also not paying the city. Then city seems to city seem to defend the millionaire apartment owners and not realize if you just did a balance sheet, like if I just sat down and did a balance sheet, these owners are costing the city more money than they're paying out. So it's just like, it's a loss or even, even. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're subsidizing property owners and then making it that like, oh, and we're going to make it easy for you. No. On the backs <laughs> of. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the renters, you had to go through hell to make people do what they legally should be doing. And I to connect this, it is not as shock to me that at the state level, uh, there's only one renter in the House and this, I mean the Assembly and the Senate in Sacramento. It's like, oh, I don't care what renters have to deal with because they're not like me. That's really screwed and up. And a good amount of landlords there. Yeah, I think uh, the the number we saw uh, at least over a quarter, <laughs> and possibly much more. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's a large number, but but absolutely, you know, when you. After you are so far removed from a situation for so long, um, it becomes it becomes hard to it becomes hard to sympathize. It becomes hard to empathize. It becomes hard to understand what what those people are going through. And I think that is one of the biggest problems not not just not just at the at the state level, but but at the local level too. You you look around at the city councils on you know here on the peninsula and. It's it's pretty hard to find a renter on any of them. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these cities might be forty percent renter, forty five percent renter, but most city councils much much smaller. You're lucky to find one or two at, at best. We most. have one currently. Yeah, San Mateo has. Um, 
I think I think San Mateo, the city of San Mateo, which is which is where I live. I think we have technically uh, Joe Gothels, who's who's our mayor. I believe uh, I may be misremembering this. I think he I think he owns. Uh, but he, you know, bought like a little, a small little place and, uh, you know, his family grew and I, and I believe now rents, um, you know, a, a larger, a larger property. Um, but so, but, uh, but other than that, and then, and then we do have, um, well, more I, insidious I than the landlords landlord. is the city councils that have Sam Carr members as council members, like Pacifica. Sam Carr is a San Mateo County Association of Realtors. <laughs> they spend an insane amount of money fighting any tenant protections, and they've now got their members placed in city councils. I mean, so okay, so I think at every level, we talk about the state level, but I think at every level, the CAA, the realtors, and then this, the the I mean, the CAA, the landlords, then the realtors are like. Two major lobbying forces, and at the local level too. Yeah, you, I mean, uh, you see people on. I guess. Okay, so we're on the boundary line between San Mateo County and Santa Clara County, and they have two different realtor associations. And weirdly, like it doesn't go along the county line. It's like a turf war. It's like right. they kind of bulge in and out. And I think Santa Clara County Realtors, uh, Lydia Koo, uh, a, a friend of the show, uh, is is uh, one of the Santa Clara people. There's some good ones. Quit laughing. Uh, yeah, they're all. I mean, she's uh, not a friend of the show. Uh, she's a friend of all. Uh, but it's I. But like Santa Clara County Realtors, like they are what they are. But the reputation of San Mateo Realtors. It's just they're famous for being like the most psychotic out there. The most aggressive. What's funny is I went to a Palo Alto City Council meeting um, with Diana Reddy when I worked on her campaign for Redwood City Council, and it was a tenant issue. And I was like, "There's only two people here, and it is so quiet. What the heck?" And she goes, "Oh yeah, you know, we're not in San Mateo, so the, like, there's no Sam car here. Because mm-hmm. if you go to one of ours in Redwood City, and we have anything for tenants, you have a line, and they they come up and go, I 'I don't live here or own property here, but I'm again.' And then you spend all night listening to their false narratives. It's it's really weird too, because I mean, like, I think most things you can kind of find out. Okay, material analysis. Who like benefits? If you're a landlord, you want to optimize the money you make. If a realtor, their material analysis is kind of, I want to turn over properties, make a lot of money. But weirdly, because they're so buddy buddy with the landlords, they always have their back. A lot of realtors run property management companies. They're kind of hand in hand, so they're also getting a percentage of fees for that service. Yeah. So there's always this part of any. I feel it's a conflict of interest for them to have a say because if you're gonna if if a decision you're going to be part of benefits you financially, yeah, that to me is a conflict of interest. But there's a lot of that. The the other thing is that often, extremely often in, in the case of the San Mateo County Association of Realtors, uh, a huge number of them are also landlords themselves. Yeah. So there's there's considerable overlap between. Um, you know, between interests, and you've got realtors who are coming out. There, there is this nexus of, uh, or this triumvirate of realtors and landlords and uh, and property management firms and workers, and and often they all not only have the same vested interests, but often they all uh, literally do the exact same thing. Yeah. So, and, and at the state level, uh, fourteen two in the end. Uh, CAA, uh, the landlords held their tongue in the end and said, "Like we will stay neutral on 1482 after certain compromises." We can get maybe more into that, but uh, the realtors were against it. It's interesting to see them not. 
kind of get to the same end point. But I guess... Uh, they we... were almost at the same end point. Sure. What happened was, I, I actually thought it was going to die. We, uh, I was in Sacramento, and I was like, ugh, I don't think we have the votes. And then Governor Newsom got involved. And the Gav, the Gav, yeah, he got them uh, to come to a place of agreement where they would quit opposing. But then there was some little snip between him and the realtors, and so they stayed opposed. But the CAA went neutral in at the Capitol. Sure. To be clear, the CAA representative still showed up at all our urgency ordinances and opposed it. Oh yeah, I, I saw that in Palo Alto when I was there. I mean, it was, it was, it was an urgency ordinance. It wasn't as written. They, they had the perfect bill and then they they, they defiled it by having this, uh, closing this loophole. So I also was saying like some people are even kind of like paranoid over it. It's like, oh, if CAA doesn't oppose it, it can't be good. Is this actually a big scheme to try to make sure that people don't reach for stronger rent control? I think that's a little bit too galaxy brain for me. I think they're all, they're all chaotic too. I think there was some weird backroom kind of deals. There always is in Sacramento. That's how things happen. It's it's an evil bad place, but it's a necessary part of how we govern stuff. Uh, so I I I don't know. Just in general, like in the future, I feel like they should be separate interests. The property managers manage property. The realtors they buy and sell. The landlords they they own land. Uh, but I mean, it's for lack of a better word, <laughs> incestuous, right? Like, yeah. I just wonder if, like, it's like you know, do a red harvest and just make them all backstab each other a bunch, you know? Because <laughs> they're all weird, uh, evil people. It should be should be a cinch, but you know, it's they it's, have clicks. I mean, over my twenty three year career, you know, I must have done two hundred deals that had the same exact key borrower, the same developer, and yeah. the same real estate agent. They like. It's a working relationship, and they just keep it going. And I was saying, like, it's like it's like a new state senator, and like one is like, oh, they're the realtor candidate. It's like, God, that's so depressing that they have the power to just essentially appoint a state senator because you know it's not nice of you to call out Annie Oliva like that, Mark. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, that's that's her brand. I mean, and when you have money like that, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And these, uh, if you look at the real estate in California, there's a lot of money <laughs> bumping around, you know. You mean a lot of stuff happen. Being someone who can be bought as a brand, that's hmm. unfortunate. Hmm. Let's talk urgency ordinances. Uh, so question number one, why were urgency ordinances necessary? Because of because the bill wouldn't go into effect until January 1st, and it would put the rent cap on and bring in the just cause portion, some landlords wanted to use the time before it went into effect, and then some of the, some of the groups even taught their landlord... T- uh, clients how to do this to attempt to get rid of your your tenant before the bill goes into effect. So we were seeing that in Redwood City. We have some um, bad operators who tried to evict a whole entire building. And that actually, them trying to do that is what gave us what we needed to ask our city staff to start moving forward on an urgency ordinance because we could prove that this was a problem, it was happening, and that we had tenants from that bill, building willing to talk to them thanks to Faith in Action going out and walking the building. So I, it, was, it, was, it was going through the pipeline all year. It was signed, was that like September, October? October. October. And even before it, like I, I mean, I, I hate myself. So I'm always like looking at landlord forums and kind of seeing and like, what is this happening? People are saying it's like, oh wait, I found the loopholes. It's like starting when this goes into effect, it has to go into effect of how it was last year. You can't jack it up. But we got all these months to jack it up, baby, and we can also squeeze them and evict them and all this. And 
Some people don't say, forget the rollback. So in the well, you're saying like once you jack it up, then the burden is on the renter. Once to... you jack it up, if you go over the five percent plus CPI, yeah. as of January first, twenty twenty, technically the landlord has to roll it back. Yeah, technically. Which is all that matters. Right. But now we've got a couple months where we can squeeze some more dollars out of them and, uh, you know, then roll it back. Yeah. And, right. And put the wow, burden. Oh, so sweet. You think they're going to roll it back. Oh, I know. And I mean, so people say like, OK, you know, it was it was, I guess, correct and smart that they make sure that the freeze, it has to be back where it was the previous year. That's good. The loophole of having it being jacked up and rolled back, was this an oversight or was this actually a feature of the bill? Or is that worth kind of even speculating on? We can I, we can speculate. Yeah. Um, I mean, David Chu didn't tell me, so I don't have a solid answer for <laughs> you. I mean, I've I've heard I've heard speculation and, and what you know what people have sort of said is the CAA, you know, it what what has sort of come up is that during discussions there was there was concern raised by by equity groups that that landlords, you know, if if the bill didn't go into a, into effect right away, that uh, essentially that that landlords would take advantage. Uh, I'm sure none of us have ever seen that before. <laughs> um, and and so there there was uh, that that concern, I believe, out there. And from my understanding, the CAA sort of pushed back and did some dinner theater where they basically said, you know, our landlords are, would never do such a thing. You know, our our members California are only is the best landlords. Only truly the most tremendous, the greatest yeah. landlords and and they would never do such a thing. Well, come September, October, as it turns out, not the case. So in 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 you know, in the end what this meant is there are how many cities in the region or in the state, but like just talking about the peninsula, there's like roughly a couple dozen or, or you know more dumb little cities throughout here, and every single one of these had to pull off an emergency ordinance to oppose this loophole, uh, and it was a fight in so many different places. I think some of them had like the same night, two different cities. Yes, like, yes, well, they. It was so that we all couldn't be in different places. Yes. Yeah. So okay. Everything happened. I was at one, and then I left, and I was watching two on on webcam. One city didn't have it. People were calling me. There was some crazy stuff happening. Yeah, I mean, we were trying were to you figure in Foster out. Foster City. I was in. Yeah, so I Tell was in Foster that. City. There was there was one night when there was. Uh, both, I can't remember if this was the Foster City one now. There was one night when it was like Burlingame, Foster City, and San Carlos. Mm. And so, obviously, tenant organizers and, and people who are invested in this are limited. And so we had to try and figure out, all right, which one of these meetings is the most important to get people to? You know, how are we going to get people there um, when we've got... You know, Samcar has basically an unlimited mailing list and can generate, you know, dozens of people to each meeting. All of whom are paid, probably. All of whom are. Well, I mean, there are definitely the paid people. And then there are the people who just it's in their vested interest. Right. You've got landlords who are like, actually, I'd like to evict all of my tenants now. Um, so it, it was it was difficult. It was it was difficult. You had Daly City and Redwood City on the same night. That was that was really the first. Right. Yeah, that was luckily. I was at the Runner Power Assembly um, down in Southern California 
right after it got signed. So I just lucked out to be sitting next to Shirley Gibson from Legal Aid Society, who was working on the draft language for Daily City. Mm-hmm. So I got I got to give that to my council members a little bit early. But even at my council, even though we did it, we didn't get the retroactivity, which I think I, I think we could have gotten it if we had a little bit more time. I think it would have happened. And then I made a grave error, apparently. Um, David Chu wrote a letter to my council. He said, is there anything I can help with? And I said, I could use a letter for my council about why we need this. And that upset my mayor. So that had the not the effect I had wanted. But we still ended up getting all the votes. So you can judge all the cities, you know, did they win or lose? But as you say, with the retroactivity, it's it's what do you want to achieve? And you could say this should be retroactive to the point that they signed or maybe even the point that was introduced. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways because the loophole, it's not, you know, just yes or no. It's it's a big curve of how much people are being jacked up rents and evictions. Uh, do you undo the evictions? Do you undo the rents? Uh, and a lot of places weren't even willing to consider the retroactivity, you know. Uh, right. From the time it was signed until we started going for urgency ordinance, Shirley Gibson at Legal Aid Society was seeing a big increase in no faults and trying to get tenants out. So that was already happening leading up to trying to do this. So the, the, the reason I wanted the retroactivity is because it would have included anyone who had been served one of those. Yeah. Um, so I was bummed we didn't get it. But after seeing what happened in some other cities, I'm still happy with my Redwood City outcome. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of it's sort of unfortunate that we didn't. It really, I it really shows, and and I hope this shows to some of the bigger cities what what a lift it is to get these kind of things. I mean. 1482 was passed. It was it was passed by by the Senate, by the yeah. Assembly. It was signed into law, and all tenant advocates were asking for was ostensibly two extra months of protection. Right? Would have been nice if they just put it in one place in the bill. Too bad that couldn't happen. Yeah, it, it absolutely it absolutely would have. But like you know, I'll I'll take having the bill now over you sure. know over not having it. And yeah. some orgs, we were working to try to get the governor to do a statewide mm, urgency yes. ordinance. And because of the fires, some areas fell underneath that ordinance. Mm. So. But was, I, I think it really shows what a struggle, especially in San Mateo County. You had you had multiple cities in San Mateo County, Pacifica, Foster City, San Bruno, Burlingame, who refused to pass any any urgency ordinance. And we're and what we're talking about again is the bill's already been signed, sealed, delivered. Yeah. And and still cities are so opposed to doing anything offensive to landlords that even even knowing that uh People are are being displaced. I think the most egregious comment came from uh, Donna Colson, who was who is then the mayor of Burlingame, who basically said, "Well, we know that some people are being displaced, but I don't really see that it's enough people being displaced, and therefore." I don't think this bill makes and sense. Can I just point out this was happening during the holidays? You can't give your constituents who are renters 60 days of protection to stay in their house during Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. And what, like that is the horrible reality, which is like real like landlords if they're being smart, you know, if they're being economically rational, it's like, oh, right before Christmas, make sure you're smart and evict your tenants right before in the year, right? The holidays. Like, God, this is so horrific. It was really Grinch-like. And also when we, some of us went before the county, 
Board of Supervisors to get an urgency ordinance, which we ended up getting. But one of Sam Carr's people was at the lectern saying they've never advised clients to evict tenants. And in my inbox from a friend who still works in real estate is the email from that woman telling everyone to evict your tenants. So then they, they said they came up with some... Oh, we're going to give money. The realtors came up with something saying we're going to give money to people who need it to make up the difference in rent. And I don't think it ever, as usual, came to fruition. It was a great reminder to me of the deference that that the realtors specifically in San Mateo County get over everyone else. This happened at the uh, San Bruno urgency ordinance meeting. But essentially, after all the speakers were given time to speak, the city council asked the Sam Carr and CAA reps to come up and essentially had a further discussion with them on the points of whether or not this was needed while all of us, uh, while all the tenant advocates in the audience, myself included, are sitting there staring going, many of the things that they are saying right now are are just outright untrue. And not only did the city council you know, refused to give anyone else uh, more speaking time. They just took everything that they said at face value and ended up uh, voting voting against the ordinance. I saw that at several urgency ordinances, city council members reaching out to people uh, who are realtors or from SAMCAR in the audience to get clarification on things. Wow. Yeah, it was surprising to me. So, so Redwood City passed when? We passed, uh, Daily City passed before us. Yeah. It was, Redwood City, I think, was at the end of end, October, End of October. Right? Okay. And, oh, and you were a little bit later in San Mateo? So San Mateo, I think, was the next week or two. Yeah. Um, San Mateo was, San Mateo was the next. And then, uh, Burlingame was last. Well, so right? Burlingame decided they had to have a study, study session. For 60 days, let's start a study during the holidays when nobody's at work they were studying an emergency ordinance so okay so uh my palo alto experience uh you know no realtors turned out there's one caa guy but actually uh so i i was there uh they were going to start at the end of uh end of november uh but the mayor was out of town so they didn't have enough uh the vice mayor was out of town so they didn't have enough people so they did the the they got it back on uh what was it uh, december 2nd i think uh and then there's like oh, it was a big to do about what would happen. Uh, big thing is Greg Tanaka on the council was just like it's like this is only it's only 29 days. What do 29 days of rent really matter? It's you know that much. Not really considering this means evictions. It just and he was very concerned about this might have an undue burden on mom and pop landlords. Let's do a study session. So he was unwilling to vote. He actually voted no, and combined with. Liz Niss, who recused herself for being a landlord, uh, it was five to one. Should that pass? No. Five to one is not enough to pass the emergency ordinance. They studied it for additional week, came back, finally passed it the next week in October, uh, in December. It's like, wow, they got you know three weeks at the end here. Real sense of urgency there. Yeah, urgency ordinance. Jeez. Uh, it's, but so in the end, every in the people that failed, they got covered to some extent by the countywide measure. 
Um, n- no, actually. So essentially, the countywide measure only applies uh, in in the unincorporated, unincorporated areas oh, of no. San Mateo County. So yeah. it's not a blanket. No, not a, not at all. It o- it only applies in in the unincorporated areas. Think uh, North Fair Oaks, sure, uh, near Redwood City, uh, the San Mateo Highlands. Um, they're you know places on the coast side. Think things like that. Yeah. So they, could could they have could they have tried for a blanket one that actually covers every city? No, I don't believe. So I don't think the county has jurisdiction, you know, has any kind of land use or regulatory jurisdiction over over the cities themselves. I, I believe the county simply regulates the the unincorporated areas. I have to agree with that because if we could have done that, I think our lawyers would have said, let's yeah, not do been easier. 10 of these. Let's just do one countywide one. And- I would just wonder if it's a bigger lift or something, but actually it's a legal thing. That's that's very that I believe it. Um and, I mean, you were talking earlier, I mean, a lot of people, like Greg Tanaka here, was very skeptical. Was like, is this a big deal? I haven't heard anything. This doesn't seem like a big deal. Let's ignore it. And you said faith in action was like going around to try to document it. People would Still. get reports and pass along. But as we say, there's no registries. There's no. no listing. So really, you have to look hard to see these evictions happening under your nose. Even when you find one, you then have to overcome that tenant's fear base. Yes. Even as a tenant advocate, it was really difficult for me to get other tenants in my building to join the tenants union. It took me months because I wanted to rent strike. Yeah, And it's a difficult thing because if you don't want to have to move or you can't afford to move and you have to stay there, now you ticked off the landlord, what kind of retaliation are you going to have to deal with? Um, so also we have tenants who may have immigration issues um, and some landlords have threatened tenants for not having paperwork and threatened to call immigration on them. So there's a lot of things you have to, you know, you can't just find the tenant and then you're good to go. There's a lot that goes into it. I really credit Faith in Action for working uh, with those tenants at that building to get them to talk. Because not only do they have to tell everyone what happened, now we're asking them to go to the podium at a city council meeting. Um, I'm not someone who really likes having to use my vulnerability as currency, but that is what we're seeing is the only way to move some of our council members. So uh, the work they do is really important, but we're also up against it with just dollars. Yeah. Like the realtor dollars. Like I worked on Diana Reddy's city council campaign and she's been a housing advocate for many decades and they spent almost $100,000 against our campaign, which I honestly think helped us actually seal the deal. I think so too. Those, but, those mailers were offensive to everyone. <laughs> and I, I actually think the realtors, I think that was a huge own goal on their part. Out right? of all the campaigns that they donate money to, Hers was the third on their list of the highest dollars spent. The other two were national campaigns. So this was in San Mateo County. Wow. So let's talk about, too, it's like just making actions. We are, for the first time in many areas, having just cause protections, which means your landlord can't evict you for no reason. In practice, if you rise up against your landlord when they're screwing you over... They can just evict you. It's the easiest. Exactly. It's the easiest thing in the book. So you said earlier when you started, you they almost tried to evict you. No, they did try. I mean, like the the original attempt was to evict you alone because you obviously were the tenant. I'm a tenant at- advocate. I will say I was a tenant advocate light when they did this. I was yeah. just helping Diana at meetings. I wasn't planning to take over the organization if we got her on council. That's just how it shook out. But the the. Four hours after the new owners got the keys, I was served a no-fault eviction to get out of my unit. How Only did, me. How did you fight that? 
Well, lucky for me, I call Clespa and have the brilliant Daniel Saver save me once again. Um, well, what was the grounds for it? It's not, I thought landlords just no fault it. means they don't have to tell you anything. Yeah. However, this, this was tangentially just one of my one of has always been, but was repeated during the urgency ordinances. One of one of the things that landlords and uh, a number of Sandcar members said was that. Really, the only point of tenant protections is to enrich the lives of the the nonprofit tenant attorneys who are working on these things. All those fat cats. All those all those fat cats down at uh, down at Community Legal Services of East Palo Alto and Legal say, Aid. Daniel Saver is no longer at Clespa, unfortunately. He's still doing some housing stuff regionally, but he was a, and he's very humble, so he wouldn't brag about this. But I know he's a Harvard graduate lawyer who's taking a salary from a 501 you know from a doing all these pro bono cases and everything so this is someone who if he wanted to could go work for the evil side and be a bazillionaire yes ab- absolutely i mean yeah I- i've known i've known dan for uh for a couple of years he he actually crafted the rent control measure in in san mateo and absolutely he could go join a big law firm yeah. you know start pulling down a hundred 80 grand a year easily and yeah. and yet he and and the other and the other attorneys at at Clespa and, and legal aid are, are just as bright and are are just as capable and all of them could could very easily you know join a white shoe firm and and start making actual um you know yeah. truly truly disturbing amounts of money uh but instead they they do the work that they do helping uh helping the most vulnerable and him, him and Diana kind of kind of almost pushed me into being a tenant advocate on accident because she introduced me to Daniel, who ended up being the lawyer who got my no-cause eviction rescinded. And then because everyone in the building freaked out, they tried to evict me because despite being a tenant advocate, I'm a very good tenant. I never paid rent late once in 17 years. Yeah. Um, so once they saw that, then they were like, well, we do want to hear about this this tenant union thing. And then Daniel came and talked to everyone. And then we formed our tenants union. And Daniel was our representative for our tenants union. So I don't think an average tenant is going to have all those, you know, be able to call someone up and get a lawyer like that quick. Sure. So that's what pushed me to, you know, to first defend the people at my building. Because, you know, when you live somewhere that long, these are like my family members. I mean, I spend holidays with, with my neighbors there. I'm still not sure I understand. So at, the, at that time, Redwood City did not have just cause. No. So how did how did you overturn it? Well, it was a no-fault eviction. You did not have to have a reason. You could sure. be evicted for... The landlord just wants you out, so you're out. The only thing that saved me, which was a total mistake on my part, they'd been walking the property. There were some guys like in my carport going through my stuff, and we'd had some break-ins, so I was like, who the heck are you? And they didn't say they were the owners, but they said, aren't you that tenant advocate that lives here? And I said, yes. And then I followed up in an email, said, nice to meet you. I'm the tenant advocate. They answered it back, so that was proof that they acknowledged they knew I was a tenant advocate. So I think what Daniel ended up being able to get them on was we can go to court but this looks really retaliatory that retaliation you, is still illegal yeah you served this eviction notice to her door four hours after this email exchange so they could they could have cleanly just gotten rid of you but because they did illegal shenanigans on top of it they screwed themselves over pretty much i i had no plans to go to sacramento and yeah you know bust my butt on 1482 all year they kind of shoved me into it they, they tried to make this whole narrative that said i was like a lifelong tenant advocate but Oddly, and I actually worked for the other side for most of my career. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting to see because 
even with all that in place, like I said, the tenants in my building were still scared. Yeah. You know, it's the holidays. You don't want to get an eviction notice during the holidays. Yeah. Especially. So we were talking about, you know, AB 1482 is one of the success stories, as aware of last year. Another part of the graveyard was SB 529, which was the explicit tenant protection for starting tenant unions and it originally in the language of doing rent strikes. This is exciting. You know, I think this is, I hopefully, as tenants have more and more voice, uh, I would say I really hope that this happens soon because having the right to do uh, rent strikes uh, protected by uh, the state law, that would be exciting. I testified for 529 the first before it died because this is why after we formed the tenants union, we got a censor letter taped to all the all the members of the tenants union got a letter on their door and it basically said if we even spoke to each other, we would be evicted immediately even if we had leases. So I took, I had that letter enlarged to a huge poster and I walked around the Capitol with it like, look, yeah. this is what happens when you try to assert your very minimal right how as would, a tenant. How much cost to get that printed? We paid 60 bucks. That's not bad. It's, it still costs, you know. It's yeah. cost to do a cool, a cool stunt like that. It's hard for a lot of people to truly understand, especially if they haven't been renters in any recent period of time, especially in a market like this where you can find another tenant in the next five minutes. Yeah. Um, it, it's truly hard for a lot of people to understand what what renters have to deal with on a daily basis, what renters have to put up with. Um, and, and, and historically, renters you know, have been the underclass that people can just ignore. It's like, oh, why don't you be a real person and be a homeowner? And I think it's really inspiring for the first time. Uh, there is a lot of people who I think have gotten so blackpilled, they're like, I'm never going to be a homeowner. I'm really going to fight because that's a good attitude to have. You know, when you have people who say like, "Yeah, let's actually make renters have the rights of real people," because that's that's not the way it has traditionally been. And I mean, you look at places like I mean, I think it's inspiring places like Berlin, Germany. Like 85 percent of people are renters, and they have real protections. Well, you let's know? give a shout out to Moms for Housing for the amazing effort and outcome they had over in Oakland because they were fighting Wedgwood forever. And not only do they now, even though they were arrested, which was unfortunate, but you know, they came They brought the tanks. They brought tanks for four mothers, let's just be clear. I mean the story the story is they're homeless. They right. they did I th- I Obviously, an effective political stunt, which is right. they they entered a vacant building, uh, you know, owned owned by, by a corporate speculator. Let's be clear. Yes, yep. and said like, "Hey, how about uh, how about we live here instead of this being used to speculate <laughs> on real estate?" Yeah, and they didn't have a legal claim, but in the end, uh, but they had an interesting legal argument, and that is that human is a house housing is a human right, and it's a good moral argument. It's a good argument, and the thing is, is even. The tanks were ridiculous. Let's just be clear. The Alameda County Sheriff's Office used military-grade equipment to evict four African-American homeless mothers during the holidays on behalf of a corporate owner. Yeah. Let's just be very clear about that. And the thing is, is now the land trust is going to get to buy the property for the moms. But in addition, and the thing I think is just so brilliant about this is the, I think because the press against them was so horrible because of what they did was so horrible that they now get, the land trust will get right a first refusal on this company's 50 other properties in Oakland. 
that's really cool. I mean, so here I think that's the the big thing. And like, this is a political this is a political stunt that helped out a handful of people. There are a lot more homeless out there, or a lot more housing insecure out there. How can we make the ability to have a guaranteed housing right for everybody? And the problem is you can't do that as long as real estate speculators have a right to make their maximum profit off of off of owning land. I mean, the Ellis Act explicitly protects. Uh, you can evict people because you have a right to make your top dollar on selling your property. Like that is irrecon- irreconcilable with having housing as a human right for people. Uh, how yeah? How about we get rid of it? That would be <laughs> that's a thought. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to require tremendous amounts of organizing and political will. But I I think what you saw with Moms for Housing, which was really just so inspiring i mean powerful to see to see homeless mothers you know take over essentially a property that was being kept vacant until it it could be made in you know into a more profitable entity for um for a corporation i think and and hope that you'll see more of these kinds of acts and i th- i think the biggest it's it's incredibly exciting that uh the land trust will have rev first refusal to those 50 homes but i think actually the biggest thing to come out of uh to come out of moms for housing and to come out of just this whole ordeal is that i think people really are waking up to a certain extent right renters really are seeing oh we can actually do something we do have power if we put our voices and our bodies and everything else on the line things things can and will change if we um, if we get directly involved in in that way, and I think we talk about fourteen and two is, isn't strong enough. It's like oh, let's dream bigger. I think even stronger rent control. It's still you know a big private money making system. It's like with a little bit of a price control. That's that's not really dreaming uh, big enough. You talk about like uh, you know, the the right of first refusal. They still have to pay a fair market price. They have to pay the appraised price. Was the agreed upon arrangement. Is that the appraised price? Is that higher than the Prop Thirteen assessment? I would guess yes. What if what if you had to pay the Prop Thirteen assessment? <laughs> that's, that's I think for the mom's house, they're end, they're going to end up paying. I believe it was about it's between six hundred and six fifty thousand. Okay. But because I spent my career working with realtors, I can tell you this is commonplace. They leave the homes empty to use as a tax write off. Most of my clients have extensive real estate schedules, and I can always tell which ones are empty because those ones don't come with a rent roll for me to process. Yeah. It, it's a it's a it's a part of their business design. Yeah. I guess my mind is always ticking like a land trust. It's a beautiful thing. How do you make it so it owns like the majority of the city or all of the city? And it's yeah. hard to scale that. But if you really kind of twist the knobs and I mean, land value tax is my, my big knob. If you're really interested in it, I would say start reading about COPA and TOPA. Sure. I mean, I think that I to me, like that is the groundwork. You talk about like, yeah, you your landlord wants to get out of the business and what happened to you you they they jacked up your rents, tried to get you out, and they did in the end. But if it was you know Copa or Topa, you could have effectively turned into a co-op. If, right. And my know. tenants at my building, we would have done that because we made that a community. All of us had put extensive money into our own units because the landlord didn't. I mean, I think I was in for like forty thousand in my unit. Yeah. Because I've been there for so long. So yeah, if that would have been an opportunity, let us buy it at the same price. Yeah. And then we'll the tenants will own it. 
Ideally, you'd be able to buy it at the Prop 13 price. Hell yeah, Prop 13 appraised price. And that's the thing. If you want to make the scale, I still haven't gotten over, by the way, that that building that you were in was only paying four thousand (laughs) dollars a year in property taxes. Like, and it's two buildings. Let's be clear: two large buildings on a huge lot. Nineteen twenty-two, though, so they're older, but. And I think that's the million mile difference. Like Copa Topa, it's great. The but new you, owners paid six million for that. The thing, if you buy it out, you have to pay the the appraise, the fair market price. As opposed to, what if if you're running it as a nonprofit residential thing for people who need it? What if you don't have to pay market price? What if you pay, like, if you you don't actually have a guaranteed right to make money yeah. off of owning your land. If if all of if all of these years landlords have been able to bank money due to prop 13 and are paying just an absurdly low property tax like that. Yeah, absolutely. Why why shouldn't, you know, under Topa or Copa, um, the community the, you know, community developer or or tenants be able to purchase purchase the building for, you know, the appraised prop 13 value. Yeah. Um the val- the value that the landlord has a- has been, you know, paying uh, to to the city for years and Here's years. Here's just a sidebar on that. So um, I handle all historic buildings at my job. I'm on the Redwood City Historic Resources Advisory Committee. We uh, have to go through and say if a home can be Mills Acted. And what the Mills Act allows for is for a historic property, if it's approved, to pay a much lower tax rate so that that money they're not paying for taxes can go back into keeping the building up to its historic code and glory, right? So there's this big process. If you have a Mills Acted historic home, you still have to give us a schedule of the work you're going to do. We check and see, is it going to be done on time? We go out, the committee members, we go out and see the houses. Prop 13 does has nothing. So it's, it's, a real, it's a real give and take. You get a benefit, but you have to earn it. Prop 13 people, they get a benefit. They don't have to give anything. You know? No, and there's no, that's one of the more interesting I don't know. Well, may interesting isn't the right word. Perverse, I guess, is the right word. Um, but when you when you look at so many apartment complexes in San Mateo County, w- one of the bigger arguments against rent control is is that it encourages decay of properties because people won't want to keep them up. But really, when you look at Prop Thirteen and tie it back into apartments and and units in San Mateo County, I think I think it's much easier to say that Prop 13 is what's having that effect rather than uh, rather than rent control. You've got buildings in in San Mateo County that are just absolutely dilapidated um, that owners have refused to spend any money on, despite having the benefits of Prop 13, despite having to pay like like Stasha's building, for example, like you're paying four grand a year in property tax. And the building is falling down around the tenants. Yeah, I want to be clear. I agree with you on that. But one of the things I'm seeing it at my own building was when I moved in, I had a great landlady. She mm-hmm. was awesome. And she came. She cared about the property. It, it was one of the only buildings she owned. She used to live in it. She was really prideful about it. She got sick and unfortunately passed away. Now I went down to her children who have never been landlords. They never wanted to own a property. And now she left them a few from her husband's property. So, And thanks to Prop 58, they, they get a... <laughs> they get to inherit her Prop 13. <laughs> right, they inherited, and they didn't even. I, I remember the first time I had to file a complaint with code enforcement, and they were like, they said the the original landlord's name, and I was like, she's been deceased for 12 years. They don't even update the city on that because that can change stuff for them. So yeah. it's a common practice, but 
my landlord was great. Her kids never wanted to be landlords. By the time they got the property, they were in their 60s and ready to retire. So now they have like, they want the rent money, but that's yeah. it. They don't, well, they don't want to hear about anything. They don't want to fix anything. They're not interested in the property. You know, that's just how it was. Just like, yeah, well, we have a bunch of rules on the books that, that, that the, the only thing we guarantee is your right to kind of get your maximum out of your property that you inherit and own and, and so on. It doesn't create good outcomes. <laughs> like, what do we want? We want stable, good communities full of That's people. Why I think it should have the same thing as the Mills Act property. Someone checks in. You got. You have your inspection. Are you up to health and safety? If you're not, you pay regular tax rate now. Tar- sorry. Yeah, I, I think if you and, and let's drug test property owners too. You know, let's just, <laughs> let's just do everything. But okay, so I, I think we uh, can wrap up here. But it's I feel like okay, we're talking about this loophole. A lot of ordinances, some some passed, some didn't. In the end, it's very hard. It feels to assess how many people weren't helped, how many evictions happened that could have been closed by the loophole because it's very hard to assess. Right? Do we have an idea of how big this might be? I have like vague numbers that I saw. It's really hard From the to know. Lawyers, exactly. But... It's what a pain that we can't, like, we don't even know what the real human cost is. Well, and I, I sort of, I almost wish that um, we we talked a little bit about, but AB 724 last year, the rental registry. Yeah. I almost wish that was in place before, uh, before 14A2 because we could actually see um, and track the, the effects of this. By the way, what yeah. garbage that, like... I think you had to have at least ten units before that came on the books or something. Yeah, it by the time by the time it made it and and again it, you see what happens with tenant bills generally, but it it didn't even make it out of the assembly. Yeah. And I know Wix had tried to make some amendments to it to make it more palatable. One of them was was something along the lines of it only applied to landlords or property owners who owned. Uh, 10 or, uh, 10 or more units, if which is nine, just absurd. Nine units, I can't afford to comply with registering. <laughs> like, well, and especially in the Bay Area, if you if you own nine if you own nine units, you are you you're, know you're getting you probably over like you're getting uh, what was that five figures every month? Yes. <laughs> you, well, and you own you know what like millions upon millions of dollars of property. Hey, my property new owners bought three properties on my same street, all of which I was keeping tabs on for a total of $87 million and then told all the tenants they were poor. Yeah. Cash yeah. poor, maybe. Oh, yeah. But So, I, so they only have paper wealth uh, and they're the real estate. I'm, I'm so sorry for these people. We, we refer to them occasionally uh, as mom and pop millionaires and yeah. I think that's an apt descriptor. I think we need to really define like a mom and pop landlord is only if you own the house you live in and one other one. That's I like it. it. Yeah. If you're letting out a room, I'm sympathetic. Yeah, you have a spare room. Most people are not like that, you know? Uh, so it's 2020, new decade, new new things. We don't know what bills are coming at the pipe, but what what are, what is your thoughts and I guess what's your optimistic attitude of what kind of actions tenants are going to be able to take at the state level uh, well, this year? Some of the advocates are pushing to go for rent control again. Yeah, you have you have uh, a push for rent control, which is which I think is fantastic. I my my personal I guess if I had a wish list, um, I'd I'd love to see. Um, I'd love to see rent control incorporated by uh, amending, you know, 1482 and lower, lowering the cap. 
Right. You know, just lower the cap to CPI because it's a reasonable framework to begin yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've you know you've you've done you've done most of the work. You know, now just go back and say actually, um, we're j- it's just going to be CPI, and yeah. and I think I think that makes a lot of sense. You can still make a whole lot of profit that way. Um, I also would love to see, and and I believe it's coming back. Uh, what we just talked about, AB seven twenty four, the rental registry. Yeah, I think we we absolutely need to be tracking these properties. Um, it's just absurd that we don't even uh, have data on yeah. on most of this, and there, there's just no good argument against against data collection. I have a list on my wall of, of the 2020 wishes I have. It's the rent control. It's right to counsel. Uh, Topa Copa funds. Also great. Um, Which right now only is an SF. They have the local measure, but right to counsel statewide. That, right. Because it's really like, oh, our, our uh, uh, tenant lawyers, fat cats. It's like if there's any kind of grease in the wheels to have on there, I, like that's a pretty good service to offer your community to help. <laughs> Tenants who have legal counsel, I think it's like eighty-five percent of them win their case. It's really it's high. a huge deal. It's a it's huge a deal. Huge it's, deal. It's, it's an absurd power imbalance of someone who yes. needs to keep a roof over their head versus a property speculator. Right, yes. and then on my my dream wish list is that we do something with uh, Ellis and with Prop 13 yeah. amendment, get rid of it. I don't know, but it needs, we need to work on that because it's a factor in a lot of the slumlord buildings in San Mateo County, in my opinion. Yeah, split rolls on the ballot this year, but it does not affect any residential stuff. Yeah. So un- I'd say I can understand maybe that makes it a lot easier to pass, but it's unfortunate because, yeah. I- there. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. One of one of the things I did want to mention is that um especially with regards with regard to uh right to counsel, Nancy Skinner had a I'm not sure if it was a bill, it became a budget writer something. Um there was there there were I want to say 18 20 million dollars allocated to to right to counsel funds. I would love to see that you know much more fleshed out this year. Um, and, and to see, you know, more funding dedicated to it. I know the budget's already been, uh, been handled, but it would, it would be great to find, find a funding mechanism, uh, to find a funding mechanism. Right. And one Redwood city is really focused on the RV dwellers right now too. I coach, I founded and co-chair, uh, county-wide safe parking group. Jordan comes, there's about 40 of us who come in and out um, because those are people who were tenants and who have been displaced and yeah. now they're living in the streets of our cities. So we're trying to establish some kind of safe parking areas for them. Is this, uh, does Redwood City not have anything yet? Or We do not. Santa Barbara has the best one in my opinion. Yeah, Palo Alto, was it last week, a week before I was there? Uh, yeah, they want to get started with it. It's like, oh, we're going to use our public land. They have like apparently some nice big old parking lot they could use, but they're not getting that to yet. First one is, let's allow churches to have up to four uh, which is like, so I have a question on that because I was working with some churches. Why do the churches need permission from city council to allow parishioners to park their RVs in their parking zoning? lot? Zoning, I'm assuming. Everything, is it zoning? Everything, yeah. yeah, it's going to be everything's illegal. So they have to announce it to their Isn't neighbors. Isn't that a property oh, right? Nothing's a property right. I mean, it, well, here's, if here's they the parked an R, if my owner parked an RV on my property forever and someone lived in it, it would be their property right. Yeah. I mean, property rights are what defends the powerful. You know, it's like you know, you don't if you want to do something that makes the powerful unhappy, that's not it stops being a property. Not to right. get really woo woo, we could talk about how all of this was stolen from you know the Ohlone Nation. Yes, I mean, we all live on stolen Ohlone land, and really, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, this is land ownership is illegitimate. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So I don't one think- one thing I wanted to bring up, just uh, I I'd, I'd forgotten about this bill, but it was it was a favorite of mine from last year. Uh, Mark Berman in Palo Alto actually authored this one. It was to allow community college students. Uh, it was basically safe parking on on community college campuses. And it got some of the most vitriolic pushback I think I've ever seen, and I'm really hoping that it that it comes back comes back this year and and is able to make it for a vote because I think it's I think it's really um, the the number of homeless and uh, unhoused and unstably housed community college students is yeah. has just skyrocketed, and I really hope that that one makes it back. I mean, yeah. this this is it didn't make any sense why it didn't. No, yeah. It, it, I mean, this is ground zero. I think this is the lowest form of public housing <laughs> is allowing people to have safe places to park, uh, and like, and I think you need to listen. What do people want and need? And a lot of these are like, oh, you can be here till eight a.m. Then you have to clear out. It's like it's like it's this big patronizing paternalistic like actually let's try to serve people well yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. and by not having any place for them to park they're also putting it in the hands of our police departments to try to figure out what to do to to bad effect i just helped an rv dweller who is a retired vet he gets 800 dollars a month social security and he went to re-register his rv so he'd be up to date and have his insurance and he'd gotten a ticket for sleeping in it like six months before and and it wasn't on the windshield mm. he like Four hundred and eighty-eight dollars in fines. This is a homeless person. We're gonna, we're ticketing them for sleeping, and we're taking what little money they have. It just perpetuates. You that. gotta protect the hotel owners. It's a cycle because they yeah. need to make their money. From- <laughs> it's a cycle of poverty. There's just it's yeah. impossible to help lift them out of that without some help. I think my council's on board. I think our yeah. problem is we don't have any land. That's what you need. I mean, land acquisition is a big part of the game. Uh, so, yeah, I look forward to hearing more from them in the future and. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks, thanks so much for sharing all of the stories, and I guess uh, you expect to be back in Sacramento this year? Oddly enough, I actually really liked it, so yes. Cool. <laughs> well, thanks a bunch. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Mark. We have been talking to Stasha Powell and Jordan Grimes all about AB 1482 and much more. This episode and all previous episodes can be found on the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Yashiro, Stanford. 